0: Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer before we open God's Word. Lord, we come humble and needy this morning as those who are weak and sinful. But God, we are so thankful that you are good, that you are a faithful Savior, and you have provided, through Jesus Christ, all that we need. You've provided life and forgiveness reconciliation with you and Lord we recognize that your purpose is not only to save us from judgment in the future but to also make us increasingly like your son Jesus Christ so God we come to you today as a people in need of change confident that you use your word and you use your spirit and you use the gathering of the church in the process of sanctifying your own so Lord do your work this morning for your namesake we pray this in Christ's name amen I want to say good morning to everyone. It's good to see you all today, and I want to also just give a special word of greeting to those who are watching at home. I know we have uh, some who are are not able to be with us, Um, and so we greet you. We want you to know we miss you and look forward to your return, but I'm thankful that God has provided a way for us to share this meeting and the songs that are sung and the truths that are preached with those who are not able to be physically present. Uh, That is a blessing, but we want to say a, a greeting to all of those of you at home, and also welcome to those of you who may be visiting uh, at our church for the first time. And we are, if you don't know, uh, right now in the midst of a construction project. That's why there's partial scaffolding behind me, and that's why we're trying to get our sound system still set up. And I don't think our main speakers are working, so don't worry about that, Bryce. I think it'll still go through to the live stream, but we're we're figuring it out every day um, <laughs> right now. And so, thanks for being willing to come, uh, even though we have porta potties out front and we have drywall dust everywhere. And hopefully in, uh, in the future weeks, we'll be able to get some of this wrapped up and start adding back in other things like our nursery and our children's church, our adult Sunday school class. I'm really looking forward to getting those things up and moving again, um, because right now what we're doing is kind of the bare minimum, and we're eager to start doing more together as a church. Uh, for those of you who are interested in our membership class or our newcomers class, Uh, We had hoped to start that in the fall, but it looks like we'll probably need to to delay that a few more weeks. January will be the latest, but we will be starting that up soon, so we'll keep you in the loop. But I want to invite you this morning to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15. This week, many of us celebrated the Thanksgiving holiday in some fashion. Um, That's an American tradition, one that goes back all the way to that first harvest celebration in Plymouth. But as Christians, as those who believe in God, as those who have received His grace, giving thanks is not a once-per-year activity, is it? No, gratitude is something that is supposed to be the constant refrain for believers. We are worshipers. We are people who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And as we sang this morning, we've been rescued from sin and death, cleansed of our sins by the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. And we have, from our Savior, a promise of eternal life with him in glory. So we have much to be thankful for. We have much for which to praise our great God. But for many people, worship, their worship, is anemic. Praise feels like a chore. Gratitude is faint. So I want to ask you this morning, how is it that a heart of worship can be cultivated and maintained over the lifetime for a believer? Well, I believe that a clear pattern of worship is modeled powerfully for us here in Exodus chapter 15. And the truth that this text holds out for us Is like gasoline on fire for a a true heart of worship. Our text today is really a psalm, although it's not in the book of Psalms. It's a song of praise that is commonly referred to as the Song of Moses. And the occasion for this song is what we saw last week in chapter 13, or chapter 14 rather. And I want to draw your attention to verses 30 and 31 of Exodus 14. It says, sort of in summary, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang. I want you to look at the verbs in verse 31. The people saw, and then they feared, and they believed. And the natural response by a heart that that has been confronted with the majesty and the reality of God's power, the natural response of one who fears the Lord and believes in Him is worship. They sing. You see, when God does something impressive, when God does something glorious and amazing, he deserves to be praised. And when people benefit from God's display of his power, when you and I experience blessing and grace and redemption because of what God has done, then grateful joy must overflow in song. You see, the point of our text this morning is very simply this. Saved people will be a singing people. The proper response to God's salvation is always worship. It's worship. That is our response. The proper response to God's salvation is always worship. So I want to walk through this song and sort of consider both the structure and the content of it so that your faith and my faith might be strengthened, and our own hearts moved to worship our God. Verses 1-3 through of chapter 15 functions as the introduction and really even the summary message of the whole thing. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. What this shows us In this introduction to the Song of Moses and in this summary message is really the essence of what worship is. We see it right here in these first three verses. That worship is, as we've said, first of all, a response. He says, I will sing to the Lord. Why? For he has triumphed gloriously. J. Packer writes that worship in the Bible is the due response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of their creator. So Moses writes, I will sing for the Lord has triumphed gloriously. But worship is not just a response. It's also the joyful embrace of God as their salvation. This is personal. Notice what Moses says. The Lord is my strength and he is my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. You see, worship is not just an abstract observation about that's God and that's what He's done. No, it is more than that. He says, my strength, my song, my salvation. You see, this is personal appropriation of what God has done. You see, God had called Israel my son. He had claimed them as His own people. And this is the response of a people In return, embracing God as their God. But worship is not just a response, it's not just a joyful embrace of God, it's ultimately rooted in who God is. Verse 3 says, The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. The name Yahweh refers to who God is in his essence his very character, his being, the I am who I am, the self-existent, eternal, all-powerful God. Ten times this song will use the personal name of God, Yahweh, showing us that God is the focus. His person, his character, and worship is ultimately rooted in who God is. So even as this song just gets out of the gate, we see that it is this response to God that that embraces all that he is and is rooted in who he is. That's what worship is. And as this song unfolds, these themes will be expanded and we get a beautiful example of what biblical worship looks like. And I want to share three points with you that shows us what this biblical worship must be. First of all, worship is remembering what God has done. It's remembering what God has done. We've already seen that in the introduction here, but verses four through 10 expand upon this triumph of God, how he has thrown the horse and his rider into the sea. Verse four recounts God's mighty works. It says, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Remember how chapter 14 ends, it says that they saw What exactly is it that they saw? They saw God's mighty works. And this song recounts all that God has done for them. They remember, first of all, his power over his enemies. Verse 4 tells us that he defeated not just some soldiers, but the choice chosen officers, the best of the best, the special forces of Pharaoh's army, the ones who had the best technology in those chariots. And in this defeat, God displayed his wrath in verses 6 through 7. God's wrath against his enemies, his anger against evil. This is part of God's majesty and it is praiseworthy. It deserves worship and it is to be remembered. They not only remember God's power over his enemies but also his power over creation. We see this in verse 8. It says at the blast of your nostrils the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. It's kind of weird for us to think about God's nostrils. That's maybe not something that you think about or include in your prayers, but this is very simply a description. It doesn't mean that God has a physical body like us but it's illustrating what happens and it shows us that this great wind that god sent this great wind that parted the sea and stood up the waters it was directed and controlled by god himself personally issued out from god it's not just him kind of you know oh look here's a a convenient circumstance and a natural thing that happened no this is divinely sovereignly controlled by God, He caused these events to happen because God has power over creation. It's interesting here that, it, that even that God chose to show his glory at this place, in the heart of the sea, because the waters, the floods, the deeps that are referred to here, that was something that ancient peoples feared. They feared the sea because it was unknown. I mean, they didn't have the technology we have. You know, underwater cameras and submarines and, you know, drones and and all these, you know, sonar to explore the depths of the ocean. Once you got past the point where the light could penetrate, it was completely unknown to them. And they feared it. It was also uncontrollable. And it still is. We can't control the ocean. And the ocean to them was unpredictable. Storms, tides, all these things that they didn't have a way to know or control or to predict but we see here that God is the master of the waters. Look at the verbs here. He piles them up. He stands them up. It says he congeals them. That it gets the idea of the water being frozen in place, no longer flowing and moving. Can you stop the current of water? Can you control where the molecules go? No, but God can, and he did. They celebrate and remember his power over creation, But they're also rehearsing his protection of his people. We see this in verses 9 through 10. The expectation of the Egyptian army was to overtake them and defeat them and plunder them. Remember, these people had just carried out all of this wealth and these riches from Egypt. And these soldiers knew that part of their payday as successful soldiers was that they got a cut. And so they're motivated by multiple reasons. Number one, they fear their boss. Pharaoh, they have to do what he says, but there's also something in it for them. And you get, even with the cadence of these these statements, this repetition that they're chasing them, pursuing them, you can almost hear the rhythm of the horse's hooves pounding in the sand. But what they expected is not what they experienced. They had plans, but so did God. He blew with his wind, first 10, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Another proof here that this is not just a marshland with six inches of water. This is a deep ocean. And these soldiers, with their armor, their chariots, their horses, sink. They sink like lead. And this is God's protection of his people. The children of Israel were unarmed, untrained, and vulnerable to this powerful army. And God says, I got this. And he protects his people. So as the children of Israel stand on the western shore of the Red Sea, and as the bodies of the dead Egyptians float up onto the shore, this song is composed. And the people sing They sing, they rejoice in what God has done, and they respond with praise and rehearse God's mighty deeds. Friends, this is what we do when we worship. We praise God for what he has done. We worship the one who made the heavens and the earth, the creator of all things. We worship the one who has spoken and fulfilled so many promises. We praise the God who sent his own son, born of a virgin, perfect and sinless. Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law in our place, who died as a substitutionary sacrifice in our place. We praise the one who has conquered death, the one who now holds the keys and invites us to come and share in eternal life through faith in him. God has done all of these things, and that is why we worship But that's not all that God has done. That's just referring to the things we see in Scripture. But consider what God has done in each of our individual lives. Think about how God has provided for you in times of need. Think about how God has protected you in ways you might not have even realized until you look over your shoulder years later and recognize that was the hand of God upon me, protecting me, guiding me to where He knew would be best for me. Think about God's sustaining grace in your life, the trials that you have walked through and survived. That's God. Think about God's perfect plan that has led you to where you are today. We have much to thank God for, much to worship Him for, much to remember as we come to worship Him. And God deserves the praise for all of it. So worship is, first of all, remembering what God has done. But secondly, expanding on those themes from the first three verses, uh, verse 11 and 12 shows us that worship is, secondly, a recognition of who God is. And this is really the, the central exclamation of praise in the heart of this song. And it comes right in the middle of it, sandwiched between the two sections. Verse 11 and 12 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. This rhetorical question is meant to emphasize something. It's meant to emphasize God's uniqueness among all the kings of the earth, among all spiritual powers, angels, demons, Satan himself, among every level of power and rule and authority. God stands alone and he stands unique. So Satan and his demons and human armies and human rulers and institutions and structures, all of it, Anyone and anything you want to throw into the mix, none of them compare. None of them compare to Yahweh, to this God. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? You see, we have to remember why God did these things. Why did he part the Red Sea? Why did he crush Pharaoh and his armies? Why did he bring the people of Israel out of Egypt? Well, if you've been with us over the last few months, you know the answer because God's been telling us over and over again. He says, so that everyone will know that I am the Lord. It's this recognition formula that God says, I am doing this so that my glory will be seen, so that my power will be known, so that my name will be famous, that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and this is my power, this is my purpose, this is my character, and there's no one like me. And I think the people of Israel got a glimpse of this God, even more than what they had seen in the plagues. They saw his power, his glory, his greatness on display. And this is why at the end of this event, it says the people saw and they what? They feared. They feared this God because they recognized who he is. You see, what they saw was not just the things that God has done. They actually got a glimpse of God in that moment and you know what they realized they realized that their anxious unbelief on the other side of the sea when they said Moses what are you doing it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt and serve the Egyptians are there no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in the wilderness they now recognize that statement that heart for what it is which is unbelief And so they fear God and they cry out in recognition, there's no one like you. You are the Lord. Majestic in holiness. Awesome in power. Doing wonders. Again, this is what's already been laid out at the beginning of this psalm. When it says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Know his name. Because there's no one like him. The Red Sea event shows us something about God. It shows us who he is. And he's not only the master of creation, but Moses points out here the Lord is also a man of war. Back in verse 3, what does that mean that the Lord is a man of war? Again, this is not saying that God is a human, that he's a man like us. It is describing him as one who is strong a man of war, one who fights with skill and ferocity. It's probably good for us to ask whether we think of God this way. Do you think of God as a man of war? We think of him as a king, yes. We think of him as the creator. We think of him with joy and gratitude as father, but a warrior? Do you see God as a warrior because he is? And this is actually good news for the children of Israel. It's good news in the world that they lived in. Because this God would lead them into battle in the near future. He would lead them against powerful armies and through hostile territories. And the Lord would fight for them. They were to have no other allies. They were to have no other dependencies. God alone was to be their confidence. And they could be confident in him. Because there's no one else like Him. There's no one else like Him. He is, according to verse 11, majestic in holiness. As we heard a few weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 6, He is holy, holy, holy. And the only response to the vision of His glorious holiness is to fall down on your face in worship. He is awesome in glorious deeds, verse 11. And parting the Red Sea is just one of them. It's not even the only impressive thing that God has done. He is the God of supernatural power who regularly and constantly does things that no one else can do. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Any competitors better show their resume. Can they do what this God does? No, they can't. Nothing is impossible for God, And this should put frail humans like us into a place of awe and reverence. It says in verse 12, he stretched out his right hand. You might say, well, wasn't it Moses who lifted up his staff? Yes, and Moses is writing this song. And Moses knows that he didn't do anything to cause the waters to part. God is responsible for all that happened. He performed this mighty deed and he should get all the credit for it. So he says, you stretched out your right hand. And then he says, verse 12, the earth swallowed them, referring to the final fate of the army of Egypt. Although they were technically drowned in water, this statement refers to them departing from the land of the living, being swallowed up by Sheol, the realm of the dead. God had plunged, these pagan and wicked people into hell and they worship God for it who is like you o lord among the gods no one this statement is a rhetorical question that is really a gauntlet being thrown down it's a statement that god is ready to take on any and every challenger anywhere anytime because god is undefeated these egyptian gods have been judged they mean nothing And it's not the last time God will prove himself to be the one true God. Later, the Philistine god, Dagon, will fall down and tip over in his own temple. Eventually, his hands and his head break off because the Ark of the Covenant is there. And God is giving them a nice object lesson that there's no one like him. He is the only true God. Later, the Canaanite god, Baal, will be humiliated, he and his prophets, in front of the entire nation. When Elijah stands on Mount Carmel and challenges them to a duel, he says, You pray to your God, I'll pray to mine, and we'll see who sends the fire down from heaven. And when Baal fails and God sends down fire to consume not only the sacrifice, but also the stones and the water and even the dirt that was underneath it, the people of Israel cry out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, he is God, echoing this same sentiment that there's no one else like him. Later, the gods of Babylon will likewise be humiliated as we see Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah going face to face, head to head with the ruler Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and others and proving the impotence of the Egyptian gods and the singular power and glory of Yahweh. So, this is a story that unfolds and repeats itself throughout Scripture. There's no one like Yahweh. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And does it move you? Does it cause you to tremble when you think about the glory and the wrath and the power and the mercy and the love of this God? Because it should. It should have that effect on us. We should be those who see and fear and believe. Proverbs 14.26 says this, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. You know what happens when we fear God rightly? An amazing thing happens. We actually stop fearing anyone or anything else. We have a strong confidence. This statement that there's no one else like the Lord should put strength in your bones today. Because we ought not be intimidated by the world. We ought not be intimidated by or fear our spiritual enemy, the devil. We ought not be intimidated by corrupt systems and the schemes of man. We ought not be fearful of false teaching and secular ideologies because our God, get this, our God is not just one option among all the truth claims out there. Faith in Him is not just one way among many. God is not just one competitor among this, the field. No, God stands supreme, unique, majestic in His holiness and power. There is no one like God. And when you get this, when you really get it, you will bow, worship, worship, is the recognition of who God is. So worship is remembering what God has done. It's recognizing who God is. And then third, worship is an anticipation of what God will do. And I love the structure of this psalm. So it's, we're celebrating and rehearsing what God has done. And then we're celebrating and anticipating what God will do. And right sandwiched in the middle is the singular truth of who God is. There is no one like him. But verses 13 through 18 show us this future, this forward-facing look. And it's a, it's a faith-filled rejoicing in what God will do. It says, listen, and they're so confident in this, they actually state it in the past tense. It says, you, verse 13, you have led your steadfast, led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And that's future tense. They're not there yet. But they're worshiping as if they are. They continue in this past tense. Verse 14. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now were the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm... They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your holy abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Remember at the end of chapter 14, the people saw what God had done. They feared because they realized who God was, but they also believed. And what was it that they believed? They believed in the coming fulfillment of God's promises. Everything that's laid out here in verses 13 through 18, that God would bring them into the promised land, that he would give them victory over their enemies, that he would bless them. What this shows us is that worship is not only just an expression of gratitude for what God has done, an expression of great reverence at who God is. Worship is also the expression of faith. Faith in what God will do. Because of God's faithfulness in the past, we can be confident in his fulfillment of all of his promises, all of his purposes in the future. This confidence is seen in the fact that they describe all these things or many of these things in the past tense because they know what God's purpose is. And if God can do what he just did with, the, with sending the plagues on Egypt and bringing them out of slavery and crushing the armies of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, then God can definitely do the rest of the things he has promised to do. And what God has promised to do is is really anchored in his redemptive purposes. What is God's purpose for these people? His purpose, his intention is to dwell with them in a special place, the place where the omnipresent God has chosen to manifest his glorious presence. God's purpose is relationship with these people, to be with them, to be their God. They will be his people And he will dwell among them. This is the reversal of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Back in Eden, you remember what happened? Man was kicked out. Adam and Eve were banished, barred from the presence of God because of their sin. But now, because of God's gracious promise, he is working to restore his people to relationship with himself so that he might dwell with them again. This is God's plan. It's his purpose. And they know it. They know where they're heading. But the fact is, there's an obstacle in the way. There are hostile nations that stand in between them and the promised land. There are other peoples already dwelling in the land who will be ready to compete with them for land. But God's judgment of Egypt at the Red Sea is making waves in more ways than one. The nations are going to tremble and fear when Israel passes by. They make mention here to the Philistines. These were a powerful warrior people. They had military technology with terms of forging instruments that the Israelites didn't have. And they would pose a great threat along the way and later on, even in the land. But they would be afraid. It says Pangs verse 14. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. It makes mention to the Edomites as well. Edom was not necessarily in the promised land, but the children of Israel would have to run the gauntlet of passing through them in order to get to Canaan. And we see in the book of Numbers what happened when they did. They refer to the Moabites, another people group that were also not in the land of Canaan, but they would be a barrier. Many of you know about the conspiracy um, and the hiring of a false prophet to bring a curse down upon the people of Israel because the Moabites were afraid. We see that in Numbers 22. The Canaanites as well are mentioned here. All the inhabitants of Canaan, it says in verse 15, have melted away. and We see this when they get to the promised land. There was a, a people called the Gibeonites who had heard about what happened to Egypt. And so rather than trying to fight against Israel, they knew that was was a hopeless task. They instead resorted to trickery in order to get a peace treaty with the Israelites. When the children of Israel come against Jericho, Rahab switches sides. You know why? Because she had heard about what God did at the Red Sea. You see, God's weapons of warfare... To fight for his people includes psychological warfare, intimidation, fear, causing anxiety and confusion among the enemies of his people. So this triumph of God at the Red Sea, it softened up Israel's adversaries and also strengthened the faith of Israel. This is all preparation for their journey and preparation for their eventual conquest. And the people sing because they are confident that God is going to do what he said he would do. You know, the lesson that these people had learned was that God was with them and that he was a man of war. They could see his presence, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, and they had just witnessed his power. And this song expresses faith that God was not with them just at the Red Sea alone. They believed he would always be with them until they reached their destination Verse 17 shows us what they're looking forward to. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. You see, the people had an expectation not just of coming to the land of Canaan in a generic sense, but coming specifically to Mount Zion. This would be the place of worship. This was the future site of the temple. It would be where the city Jerusalem was. And it would be the center of their nation spiritually. The place where God's glory would be manifested. And notice, this is the place of God's choosing. God's not just blessing their plans. No, God is including them in His plans. And that's why they know where they are heading. And all of this is due, according to verse 13, to God's strength and his steadfast love. He leads them in his steadfast love, the people that he has redeemed. He has guided them by his strength. His strength and his steadfast love. This word steadfast love is an important word. It is the Hebrew word hased, And it has the idea of covenant faithfulness. That God is loyal to his people and to his promise. And that's what these people are believing in. They believe that the God of all power, the God of wrath, the God who is sovereign over creation and triumphant over his enemies. They believe that this God loves them and that he keeps his promises. And that's why they are certain That they will make it to their eventual destination. This central place in the heart of Israel, Mount Zion, where the temple will one day be built and God's presence will be manifest. That's where they're heading. But there's a final phrase in this song, and it looks by faith even further into the future, to something even greater than the kingdom of Israel in the land of Canaan. Verse 19 or 18 says, The Lord will reign. Forever and ever. You see, the kingdom of God, unlike the kingdoms of man, does not depend on ancestry. It does not depend on human military power and strategy. It does not depend on any elections. It is guaranteed by the sovereign power and plan of God. He will reign. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. Daniel sees a vision. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. See, here's the thing. The rule of Pharaoh, the rule of the leaders of Edom and Moab, the leaders of Canaan, other success- successive nations and empires, they are all temporary. All Whether they last for a day or for 400 years, they all come to an end. They are all passing by. But the kingdom of God is different. His kingdom is forever. You see, the children of Israel sing this song, rejoicing not only in what God has done, but also in what God will do. Their worship is the recounting of history, but it's also forward-facing, confident in the faithfulness and steadfast love of God. And when we worship, that is what we do. I love how many of the hymns we sing follow this pattern, recounting what God has done, the God of creation, the God of salvation, but they often conclude with a verse that looks forward. The last verse of Amazing Grace when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining like the sun. It's anticipating that future. The song It Is Well finishes with that verse And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, and the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. The trumpet shall sound, and the Lord will descend. And what's the response to that? Praise the Lord, O my soul. And we could go on and on and on. I had like six different examples written down, but I'll save them for another time, for time's sake. But I love that we incorporate that into the best songs, incorporate that into their very lyrics. Rehearsing not only what God has done, but who he is and what he will do. Worship is an anticipation of what God will do. It's an expression of faith. This text actually ends with a narrative description of what happened. Verse 19 says, For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You know what Miriam does? She goes out and she teaches people this song. She teaches it to them, calling them to worship, teaching them what to sing. The descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the mixed multitude that had joined in with them that had recently been added. They were going to learn this song and pass it down throughout successive generations. Future generations to come would learn history and learn theology as they learned to worship. In taking this song upon their lips and these truths into their hearts. And friends, this story and this text, this song is preserved for us to teach us to sing as well. To teach us history, but also theology. And to exhort us and call us to join in in worshiping this God. So let me ask you, have you seen God's glory displayed in his mighty works? Have you read it on the pages of scripture and seen it in your own life? Do you fear him as the great God who triumphs over all? Do you believe that there is no one else like him? And do you believe in his promises that all of his purposes will come to pass? Can you say personally, not just as an abstract theological proposition, but as a personal profession of faith, can you say the Lord is my strength, the Lord is my song, and he has become my salvation? This is my God, and I will praise him. Can you say that? Friends, if you are saved, then you will sing. Because the proper response to God's salvation is always worship. As we remember God with gratitude, our reverent recognition of who he is, our faith-filled anticipation Of what God will do, all of that must be expressed vertically to God. He is worthy of praise, and we must sing to Him. It's also to be expressed personally. Each one of us must embrace Him and His promises and resolve to sing. And God is to be worshipped corporately. Miriam goes out and teaches it to the congregation, and they join in an organized song. This is the very practical application of this text. We should sing. And this is why. But there's also a theological connection I want to make today. And one that, I, that really brings this text into our current moment. And I think it's something that will bring perspective and encourage you. Because the song of Moses, rehearsing God's victory over the armies of Egypt at the Red Sea. This whole event, it actually foreshadows a future conflict. I mentioned last week, the story of the Red Sea is not here to teach us that any difficulty you have, God's going to part the waters and bring you through. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But we don't have promises for things like employment and health and, and smooth relationships and, and all of those sorts of things. But I believe that the triumph of God at the Red Sea does foreshadow something that is for us. And it's eschatological. It's pointing forward to a coming conflict. Because this is not the last time that men and armies will march against God. And it's not the last time that God will act in absolute power to crush his enemies. You know, there's really an amazing parallel between this character, Pharaoh, and the book of Exodus and Satan himself. Consider, they both manifest insane pride and ambition that they express in their opposition to God. They both have that same disease. Think about how both of them hold as slaves people chosen by God. Pharaoh in a physical, literal sense as slaves in Egypt, but Satan in a spiritual sense. Shackles of darkness, blinding the eyes of people to keep them from seeing the glory of God in Christ and both of them when they lose their slaves they want them back don't they and they chase after them they hunt them down that's why second Peter 5 8 says beware because he prowls around our adversary our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour just like the pounding hooves of the horses and the the spinning of the chariot wheels chasing after the people of Israel. Consider both Pharaoh and Satan have real power. They do. And they pose a very real threat. And both of them, as they gather their strength, they come against God and his people in a real battle. There's a real battle coming. But both of them also share the same fate. Here's the difference. Pharaoh has already experienced his, but Satan's is still to come. The day of the Lord will include great disaster for human armies at the hand of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Go ahead and turn to Revelation 19. This is a longer text, and I'm just going to read it with no comment. And I think you'll see the parallels between the Red Sea and what God does in the return of His Son, the day of the Lord. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. By the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. If you turn the page to chapter 20, there's another battle mentioned that follows. And this is the nail in the coffin. In chapter 20, verse 7, it says, When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I hope you saw all of the connecting words and themes in these battles that trace all the way back to the song of Moses. In fact, this is why in Revelation chapter 15, John writes, he sees these people in heaven. It says they're singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. The song of Moses is going to get a few more verses added to it. When Christ comes to conquer and to reign, who is a man of war? who will defeat his enemies and redeem his people. The fact that the Lord is a warrior is good news for us, but it is bad news for our enemy Satan. Just like Pharaoh was brought to his knees by the plagues at our Passover, when the Lamb of God was slain, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's prison doors, or Satan's Prison doors have been broken open and Christ has led forth a host of captives into freedom. He's been humiliated. Colossians says that God has put him and his demons to open shame by triumphing over them through what Christ has done on the cross. But now he's mad and he's still making war and pursuing these people that he has lost. But we know how the story ends. We know what is coming. Our Lord, our God, is a warrior, and that is good news for us. And it spells a final defeat that is coming for Satan. And as we trust in God's promises, and as we anticipate the fulfillment of his plan, and we look forward to this day, the day of the Lord, we can draw comfort and strength and confidence from it. Because the battle is his. Notice that the victory in these battles does not depend on us or upon our strength or upon our skill. The battle is the Lord's. The Lord is our strength and our song, and he will get the glory. So as those today who see, as those who fear this God, and as those who believe in his promises, we need to worship him, remembering what he has done, recognizing who he is, and also anticipating what he will do. This is our response of worship to all that God is, all that he has done, And all that he has promised to do. So listen to the call of Miriam. Sing. Sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. Father, as we read this text, we are amazed at all that you have done. We stand in awe at who you are. Majestic in holiness. Awesome in power. Doing wondrous deeds. Lord, there is no one like you. No one compares. Lord, stir up a heart of faith and fear and gratitude in us. I pray that we would recognize all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, saving us, cleansing us from sin, making us alive. And Lord, give us a confident faith in what you will do. You will be with us to the end. Your kingdom will last forever. And you will ultimately crush our great enemy. All for your glory, for the sake of your name. And Lord, we rejoice that you have given us the gracious privilege participating in your plan. So, Lord, cultivate and sustain a heart of worship in us as we go from here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.